Good morning, Four Oaks Church. Um, I'm pa- Pastor Paul. If we don't know each other, so glad that you were here. Um, love to meet you. For those who are joining online, um, glad you're here. For those who've braved the weather, um, thanks for coming out. Um, let me say a couple things about the Christmas Eve service. You know, pastors aren't supposed to play favorites. I probably shouldn't say this, but Christmas Eve is personally my favorite um, service that we do each and every year. I do reserve the right to change my mind to tell you another service is so you can come to that one too. But anyway, I really, I really love our Christmas Eve service. It's going to be super special this year. It's going to be outside, 5.30 p.m., singing carols under the stars. We're going to be taking communion together. It's just going to be a wonderful time as a church family. Now, we are, our crack weather team is monitoring the weather and so if we have to make um, a call to, to pull in from outside, the show will go on. We'll do two indoor services, but we should let you know something about that pretty early in the week so that you have plenty of time. We'll have two services if that's the case, four and six. But hopefully um, we'll get to do one service together as a church family. We'd love for you to be there. Bring your friends, your family. It's just one of our special times of the year. All right, Galatians chapter four. That's where we are this morning. We're taking five Sundays, five messages to unpack two, can you imagine that, two verses. So after spending a ton of time in Genesis over the last couple of years and taking big narrative swaths of scripture, we are sort of camping out, planting our flag, so to speak, in these two verses and just praying that God really um, rings out every drop of precious truth in those verses And let me read them and tell you where we've been and where we're going this morning. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Here's the word of the Lord. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, in a nutshell, here is, here is where we've been. We've talked about that before the foundation of the world, God's plan was to send forth the preexistent, eternal son of God to become a man, to become something he wasn't, without ceasing to be who he already was, God. And as a result of this, we now have God's presence among us. Now, here's the question we want to get after this morning. Why? What was the driving force behind this plan? What fundamentally did Jesus come to do? What was his mission? What was his singular focus? We might could say that Jesus did many things or came to do many things and to preach many things, but I think as we're going to see from this passage, there is one singular aspect to his mission that was the driving force for all of the others. And that was to make a purchase. And we're going to be camping out on that little phrase, to redeem those under the law. And so here are our three points this morning. Here we go. Number one, what is redemption? Number two, why do we need it? And thirdly, how does it happen? So let me pray, and we're going to dive into God's Word together. Lord, we have intentionally slowed way down this Advent season to sort of put ourselves in juxtaposition to everything that's going on around us. 
Lord, life may be frenetic, but our souls are in desperate need of rest. And so, Lord, would you please, we pray, empower us with your spirit, open our eyes to your word. Lord, would you reveal yourself in a mighty, glorious way so that looking intently into the law of perfect freedom, we might indeed be changed. Lord, that's what we're asking. That's what we're praying. And we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Number one, let's roll. What is redemption? Now, when we think about redemption culturally, oftentimes we think about it as sort of some kind of personal achievement, or we've made up for lost time, or we've redeemed ourselves. We've, we've, we've grown, we've changed, we've matured. Or we might even say that show or movie has a redemptive theme about it. And so Susan and I sat down and did something we've never done before last night. We decided to find out what all the hubbub is about the Hallmark Channel and Christmas movies. And we began by scoffing, and we ended by crying. That's all I want to say. It was a redemptive movie. Now, that's not exactly what Paul has in mind when he talks about redemption. And to kind of illustrate what I think Paul means by this idea of redemption, I want to tell you about another movie that is one of our all-time favorites. It's a great little family flick. It's called Waking Ned Divine. Highly recommend it. And it's the story of a small fishing village populated by senior citizens on the coast of Ireland. And it's like taking a snapshot of 19th century, century Britain. And everybody's life is very simple, and they do the same things day after day. But one of the things that these senior citizens love to do in this little town in Ireland is they love to play the lottery. And the movie opens by showing each of them individually or his family sitting in front of their television sets with their lottery ticket. And the man comes on and begins to read the, the winning lottery numbers. And every person in town grows increasingly excited because their lottery ticket matches each number, okay, the Powerball, as those numbers are drawn and read out and they are all separately getting, gaining anticipation until finally they realize they read the last number and none of the people they showed had, had won the lottery, but as they come back into town the next day and they realize they had all bought their lottery tickets at the same time in the same place, they realized somebody in that village had won the lottery. And the first part of the movie is all the shenanigans that go on to figure out who it was, right? Who's got the big secret? Well, so finally they convene the whole village and bring everybody together to, to sort of hash it out to find out who it really is. And they realize there's one person missing. Oh, this must be the person, right? So they send little envoy to this person's house, and they discover that this person indeed did have the winning lottery ticket, but in the process of sitting in their easy chair, hearing the winning number read, they died of a heart attack and had passed away. It's heartwarming, just trust me, okay? Don't overstate that. The second part of the movie is about how the whole village then conspired together to figure out how are we going to cash in that ticket? How are we going to pretend to be that guy? to exchange that ticket, to redeem that ticket so that it will transform and change our lives. Just a little scrap of paper exchanged for all these untold millions. And when we think about that idea of redemption, 
to trade something for something else, to pay something in order to receive something in return. That's the idea here. See, when it says Christ came to redeem those under the law, the word for redeem, exagorazo, means to exchange or to buy out from, uh, specifically to ransom, almost as if you had pawned something at the pawn shop and you were going back to reclaim what was yours and you had to pay a little extra, a, a, a little bit of a greater price than you initially did. This is, this is the idea that Paul is driving at. And this term to redeem is actually, in that culture, a marketplace term for goods and services. Now, people living in the ancient world who were reading this, for the people in the churches in Galatia, they would have been intimately familiar with this idea of redemption. Because at the heart of Roman culture was this idea that it was people who were actually purchased and redeemed, specifically slaves. Remember that slavery was a dominant institution. It, it, it involved millions of people in, in different and significant ways than what we know as American slavery here in our country. But slavery was oftentimes an actual profession. It gave you an opportunity at different times to move up, to work towards your freedom, but every slave knew, every master knew, every employer knew that if a slave wanted to be free, truly free, they had to pay a redemption price. Or in rare cases, they would have someone pay it for them. Now, you see this notion of Roman redemption in the movie Ben-Hur, um, with Charlton Heston, and Judah is a, is a slave on a Roman warship. And during a battle, that warship is sunk and it's sinking, and Judah ends up saving the life of the Roman commander general of the ship. And in return, this general adopts Judah as his very son. But in order for him to have the full adoption as son, someone had to purchase his freedom. He, there had to be a redemption price Paid, and in this case, the Roman general paid that price to the Roman Empire because they are the ones that, quote-unquote, owns Judah. Well, the scripture writers took this same concept of redemption, and this is fascinating. They applied it to the spiritual transaction that happens between God and man. They apply it to explain the reality of what must happen between us and God in order for us to be reconciled to God, in order for us to be rescued from our sin. Now, there are literally dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of passages which speak of redemption in the Bible, specifically applied to people in the context of God. Here are just a couple. Here's just a sample. Deuteronomy 7, 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Titus 2, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people 
for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here's the reality, folks. Everyone in the history of planet Earth who has been born on this Earth was born into a state of needing spiritual redemption. Without question, without exception, every person that's ever been born, every person that is living, every person that is in this room, every person that will be born one day is in need of a spiritual transaction between themselves and God. And so we want to say, what do we mean by that? And why is this the case? So second point, let's go back to the text. Paul says we are, this is because we are born under the law. Now, if that's unclear, in any time, by the way, something in Scripture is unclear, a, a, good, um, bib- a, a good method or a good principle of biblical interpretation is always use the Bible to, trans- to interpret the Bible. In other words, if something is unclear from the Bible, don't go first to your philosophy book. Don't go to your history book first. Go to the Bible. Now, specifically, and John Piper says this, and I think he's, he's right on it. This is so helpful. He says, but in going back to the Bible, always look within the gospel or the letter or the book of the Bible first that you're studying, because oftentimes the author will tell you very clearly what he means by that. And this is clearly the case in Galatians. So if we go back one chapter in Galatians, Paul explains what he means by born under the law. Listen to Galatians 3, 10 through 11. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now when Paul says it is written, he's referring back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 27, which says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And he's making the point that if mankind wants life, if you, if you and I want a life that is one of true flourishing, is one of true joy and peace and wholeness, then that's going to mean that, that we are fundamentally going to have to be living in harmony with God. We're going to have to be living in harmony with, with the Creator. Some of you are getting ready to host people for Christmas. Some of you are going to be traveling for Christmas. And let's be honest, okay, some of the folks that you're going to be hanging out with, if they weren't family, let's be honest, you probably wouldn't be hanging out with them, right? Don't, don't, that, that's not my family, right? Okay, but, but you get what I'm saying. When there's fundamental disharmony, Christmas is, is, is it's, it can be tense, right? It can be awkward. It can be everybody's looking at their watches and saying, when is this going to be over? Well, there's the same spiritual principle in reality at play. If we want to live lives that are full and whole, that are abundant, that are flourishing, that doesn't happen apart from our Creator. That doesn't, that doesn't happen apart from our living God. And in order for us to be in perfect relationship with God, what does the Scripture say? Obey the law. All of it. All of it, and you will have life. 
Now, Paul throws in a little secondary comment. He says, this is the understatement of the year. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. It's Paul's way of saying, good luck with that. I I hope that goes well for you. It's it's Paul pulling the Dr. Phil. Tell me how that one's working out for you living under the law and trying to obey perfectly and maintain this harmonious relationship with God who's holy and perfect. Well, obviously, Paul's saying, you can't, we can't. And the reason is that you and I were born into bondage. We were born into sin. We were born with another master. And that master is our we are enslaved to, that master is our own sin, which is why, okay, Paul is saying here, you and I have to be ransomed. We have to be rescued. We have to be redeemed. We have to be bought back. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now listen, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I never learned that one on the Sunday school felt board. Did you? Okay. Johnny, you're, you're a child of wrath, okay? And let's, let's create a craft about that. That's not, not typically, in fact, when we hear that, by nature, children of wrath, there's just something in it, isn't there just a little something? For some of us, it might be a lot of something. But, but for almost all of us, there's something that just kind of cringes at that, right? It sounds so harsh, and it sounds so offensive, and it just sounds so... We're embarrassed to say things like that. That just seems so unsophisticated, so uncouth. Now, understand something. This has always been the way of it for God's people. In other words, there are parts of God's truth, depending on what time and culture we live in, that are more or less palpable than others. In other words, there, there, there's some truths today in which, in which the world, the secular world, will gladly come alongside of us and say, good job. If you're fighting racism, if you're feeding the poor, if you are doing a whole host of other humanitarian causes, um, there is affirmation. That is a biblical value, though. It's rooted in the Bible, and it's palpable because of our particular day and age and time. When it comes to sexual ethics... Not so much. See, things that are just as abundantly clear in the scriptures, um, which give us commands to care for the poor and care for the needy, and the fact that even Paul says there in Galatians 4, there is no distinctions in people. Everyone is made in the image of God. He tells us there's neither slave nor free, right? He makes these things clear, but obviously there's been times in histories that even Christians have totally missed this. Because the culture has been so strong when it's institutionalized, things like slavery and Jim Crow and those sorts of things. Well, in our own day and time, there are certain truths that are just less palpable, that are more, can we say it, odious, more offensive, more just implausible. And this is clearly the case, not only with things like sexual ethics and family and life and marriage and abortion and other 
truths we draw from Genesis 1 and 2, but it's particularly true when it comes to wrath. You see, wrath just sounds so intolerant. It sounds so judgmental. And of course, our culture values tolerance above all things, all things except biblical truth, of course. And something like a wrathful God, Pastor Paul, that's just offensive. That's just primitive. That's just hateful and a leftover vestige of pagan religion. It just, it's just, you know, I can scroll through my Twitter feed, doom scrolling, they call it, and I can even see Christians, purported Christians, saying these same sorts of things. It's just, this is offensive. It's going to turn people off. It's just not, it's just not palpable. It's, it, and here, here's just a great principle, church. Regardless of what day and age we live in, the word of God is eternal. It is true. It is our authority. It is binding. And whether you and I or our culture or anybody else, just because something is unpopular or just because something doesn't feel right, guess what? Doesn't make it untrue. Which is why we have to, we have, to have a, a higher standard to appeal to. Otherwise, ethics just become the majority rule. And what one culture says is okay in this culture, another culture, another era says it's not okay. We have to appeal to the word of God. What does the word of God say about the wrath of God? And what does that have to do with us? Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. John 3.36, we hear about John 3.16. Here's John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let me explain to you why wrath is so important and why we don't need to jettison it for the sake of making Christianity in our day and culture just smoother and less edgy. See, wrath is God's settled opposition against sin. Wrath is God's righteous reaction to sin and rebellion and injustice of all kinds. And without wrath, without God's wrath, without God's judgment, we ultimately have no ultimate foundation for making any ethical judgments whatsoever. As I mentioned before, the majority point rules. If the, if the majority of culture says slavery is okay, it's okay. And this country once did. If the majority of this country says abortion is okay, which it does, okay, it's okay. But ultimately, when we jettison the wrath of God, we, we, we not only eviscerate the gospel, but we are undercutting the very thing by which God says, one day I'm going to come and make all of this right. My judgments are going to be true. I'm going to display my righteousness. I'm going to fix every wrong. I'm going to mend everything that's broken. Everyone will get, quote unquote, okay, what they deserve, except the person who turns and places their faith in Christ. You see, that was the very mission of Christ, was to redeem us, to free us from the wrath of God. Again, third point, how does that happen? 
Let's go back to Galatians for a second. Christ redeemed us, and I think this is one of the most important verses in all the Bible. It's so clear as to what the mission of Christ was and what his death actually has done for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now listen, this is just staggering. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Of course, Paul is quoting there from Deuteronomy 21. And in the Old Testament, when there was a capital offense against God, not only was that person stoned, but they were often hung on a tree. As an example to say, this is someone who turned their back on God, who is actually under the curse of God. And others would walk by and say, the curse of God, whoa, is on that man. This is why the Jews found the mission of Christ so scandalous, so offensive. Because they were asking, how in the world can we worship a cursed Messiah? How could we worship someone who is hung on a tree? How, how, could, how could this be God's remedy for us? But yet, as we see here, Christ had to be cursed. Someone is going to bear the curse of your sin. Someone will. It's either you or it's Jesus. Listen to Romans 3. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word appreciation, propitiation, it means to, to propitiate, means to satisfy the wrath of, to appease, to make things right. And what Paul seems to be saying is that, see, God's wrath was directed at us rightly, justly, truly, fully. But Jesus, who died on a tree, became a curse for us, and God's wrath was no longer directed at us. It was directed at him. It was poured out on his own son. And it's only as we begin, church, to wrap our minds around this staggering spiritual transaction do we really understand why Jesus came and why he had to die in order to redeem us who were under the law, under the curse of the law, by taking that curse upon himself. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Knowing that you were, same word, ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, because I know that Advent Christmas season, which on one hand is so full of joyous anticipation and excitement and all of those things, for so many of you, so many of us, is one of the hardest, if not the hardest times of the year. Because it's during this season that you, are you not, reminded of all the what-ifs in your life. Maybe it's because someone has died is not going to be celebrating with you. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe this is the time of year where you just sort of feel like the judgment 
of God just sort of rest over you. That, that, that the condemnation of your sins just sort of follow you from year to year to year. And no matter how far in the past they are, they always seem to just sort of seep back into your conscience and burden your soul. Do you need to be reminded on a, maybe, maybe you get all this stuff theologically. Yes, Pastor Paul, I affirm this. Yes, Pastor Paul, I believe that's true. But how is it operating on the ground level of your heart? How, on, on the street level of living, do you know, Christian, that there literally is no condemnation for you? Do you literally know that if your faith is resting in Christ this morning, that nothing can separate you from his love? Do you literally know, Christian, that because the wrath of God has been poured out upon his own son, and by the way, who was it that offered up his own son? The Father. Do you know that because of that, his judgment no longer rests upon you? His wrath no longer rests upon you. He is pleased with you. He loves you. He has clothed you with his mercy and grace. He has adopted you as his son or daughter, all because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God So as we are celebrating Advent this season, I hope and pray that within the confines of that little manger and stable, we will see that looming in the background from the day he was born to the day he ascended into heaven was the cross. Christian, Jesus never got past the cross. It was his singular focus. It was his singular mission in order to redeem us who were born under the law to be cursed in our place so that we might be redeemed, set free from our sin to know our Father. Jesus puts it so succinctly in Mark 10. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So how did Jesus serve us? And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to be born in a manger in order to die on a cross so that we might be set free to know him and the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we light the Advent candle, we do have hope as we await Jesus coming back a second time. But the reason that we are waiting in hope and not in despair and not in judgment is because of what Jesus has done for us in the past. Let's pray.